Hi everyone and welcome to the Parma podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, a new guest to the show today. Somebody I've wanted to have on the show for a while and um, yeah, welcome to the show, Reverend Dr. Shannon Polk. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the conversation. Yeah, it's a real privilege to have you on the show. Um, yeah, I'm really, um, I'm really excited to talk to you and to listen to you. And um, there's so much we we can talk about. Um, so yeah, I mean, tell us first off, tell us a bit about like who you are and the work that you do. Sure. So um, I'm from a city that the world knows now because we had a little water situation. I'm from Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Um, it's where I was born and raised. And um, after going to school and so forth, I um, went to seminary. Uh, I'm an associate pastor right now at what is predominantly white Assembly of God Church um, in the heart of downtown Flint. Um, we're in the process of merging with a predominantly black church because uh, our senior pastor really just has a heart that the church really needs to resemble the community that we live in. So some of my work here has been leading folks through um, different curriculum and conversations around race. One of the tools we used uh, came from Be the Bridge with Tasha Morrison, leads that organization called Whiteness 101, where we led the staff and their spouses through this conversation around white fragility, white supremacy. Um, because I just felt like we couldn't properly merge with a predominantly black church if we didn't have that conversation first. Um, and then, you know, my work is I do consulting with organizations, some nonprofits, uh, who are trying to figure out how do we do this better? You know, we know we want to be more um, receptive and more involving of the community around us. Um, oftentimes the conversation will start with, we're a group of old white guys. We're not sure where to go with this. And we don't know who can you, can you help us think through this? And so being involved in some of those conversations. Um, but education, I'm also an attorney. And so sometimes I'll get phone calls with people say, hey, I have a question. Is this racism? <laughs> and is, there, is this why this happened to me? Like, well, yes, let me give you some legal advice and tell you who you may need to contact. So that's a lot of the work that I do in addition to, you know, general preaching and teaching. Yeah, that's that's great work. I mean, it's really important work because I mean it's great that companies actually do want to want to learn and want to listen. Um, I mean, do you find that some of these? I mean, because we've seen a lot of in re- recently in, re- in regards to recent events with, um, um, you know, uh, we've seen companies come out and make statements about. Um, systemic racism and race, you know, racial injustice, and many of them have seemed to appear to be kind of token gestures. And some of them, I mean, like Ben and Jerry's is an example. Ben and Jerry's kind of gave out a whole history of systemic racism, and you know, and the um, system of incarceration and Jim Crow and all of, and everything. Uh, they were and genuinely, they were committed to change in doing the work but there were other companies that weren't doing that and so do you find i mean do you encounter both kinds of company or is it largely people that want to do the work i encounter both because i think that people 
have this idea of, boy, I want to get engaged. I want to be on divorce. I want to hire more women. I want to hire, you know, more people of color. But they don't understand how they're going to have to change. Mm-hmm. They just want to bring in people that are going to tow the company line. And I just said, it's like, you can bring them in, but they're not going to laugh because this system is not designed for them. This is not welcoming for them. So if you really want to be diverse, you're going to have to make systemic changes. And that's when they have to decide if that's what they're really ready to do or they're not. You know, sometimes you find some leaders are ready, but sometimes, you know, it may be a situation where the people supporting them aren't ready. I found that to be the case um, with various nonprofits. You know, sometimes someone's really excited, but you have to get the board ready. I've seen boards that were ready, but maybe the executive director was not, right? And so it's getting everybody moving in the same direction, saying, you know what, it's time for change. We can't just talk about it. We actually have to do things that are actionable, you know. We have to not just, I think, one of the things you'll see a lot of companies do is they're like, okay, we want to put together a strategic plan. Great, but how are you going to actually implement that and really make a difference? Um, At this particular stage in my life, you know, conversations are good, but... You know, I was talking with this organization just last week, and I said to them, I said, I know you want to do this work. I said, but I looked at your website. I didn't see a single person of color on your website. Like, Mm. this is some basic things, like, that you can start doing if you really want to do this. You know, where are the people of color within your organization? Are they in token roles? Um, Particularly, you see this in churches, where oftentimes people of color are relegated to the worship department. Uh, it's kind of like, I think that they can do more than sing and play instruments. So are you serious? You know, are you willing to put people in leadership positions? A lot of my research is around leadership in my doctoral program. And just, you know, are people ready to see, are they ready to be led by people who are different than them? There was this thing that often goes, makes the round on social media. When, when did you have your first black teacher? or your first teacher of color. And for a lot of people, they've never had one. And if they did, it might have been a university, maybe. So mm-hmm. what happens then is because they've never had to yield or have a person of color and authority over them, the minute they do, they don't know how to respond because they have been trained to think that people in color are not leaders. Now, no one specifically said that to them, but they get all these implicit messages throughout their life. And so they encounter their first boss of color. You'll hear this a lot from black people in academia that they'll have students who are very uncouple when they grade their papers. They're like, oh, this is so unfair. And it's like, was it really unfair or just you're not used to having a woman of color or a man of color tell you that maybe you're not as smart as you thought you were? Hmm. And so you begin to see, you begin to get this kind of, you know, people really uncomfortable with that. Yeah, and it is. It is. I mean, it is discomforting. I guess that when you realise just how much you're part of the system, you know. As I've been doing some of this work, and it's it's, it's really uncomfortable as as a, as a white as a white male, you know, like. Uh, it's really uncomfortable when you find out just how much you've played a part in this system and what this system has done 
and how you've been a part of that. It's you know, but it's important. It's, it's absolutely necessary because systemic racism is real, and it's and um, we, you know, white supremacy and white privilege is real, and it's so ingrained in the system that we have that we don't even notice it if we're white people. That you know, yeah, you you don't notice, and I. So I'll tell you this story about my husband. My husband is white, and he grew up probably 20 minutes from where I grew up at. I grew up in the city of Flint. He grew up in the suburb of Flint in this nice house on a lake. So he spent his summers out on the pontoon, out with his family. Hmm. He went to these private schools, all his life, some private Catholic, some private Episcopalian schools, right? And so we start, we meet. We start dating. We eventually get married. And in the process of our dating, getting married, he begins to see the world through my lens. Because now he's in a relationship with who has an entirely different world experience than he has had. And we were, we'd go shopping. And it would take forever for me to get waited on. Or we'd be someplace who would say, okay, they'd get him a table and go, wait just a minute, we'll get something for you, not realizing we were together. Um, I would ask a question one time we were someplace and I asked a question and he said excuse me are, are, are you from this country because I can't understand you and he just was livid at some of these experiences right and so after seeing this again and again day in and day out we were talking one day and he just burst into tears and I'm looking I'm like what's wrong and he said to me, they lied to me. They had lied to me my entire life. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to figure out what's going on with him. He said, he said, from the Sunday school teacher to the people in the school to my college, he said, they had lied to me. He said, they taught me a system that said that somehow I was inherently better, that meritocracy was real, that that's all you had to do. He said, they never, ever told me just how real this is and how they reinforced it in my life. He said, and now I have to unlearn everything because I don't know what's true and what's not. He said, and these are the same people that supposedly talked to me about Jesus. These are the people that introduced He said, but they have lied to me so much. He said, the whole church is everything. He said, they lied to me. And that began a process for him of unlearning and relearning everything that he thought he knew because he was raised in the white Christian evangelical bubble. Mm. And that was so disheartening. And so in the U.S., you know, after the election, I saw so many white people wrestling with the same thing my husband was wrestling with, which is this can't be what Christianity is about. This can't be what justice is about. And I saw them wrestling because I saw my husband wrestling with this place. I want to be right. I want to be for those things that are true and those things that are just and those things that are holy, and this can't be it. You are holding up a system that is inherently flawed, and I can't in good conscience support this system. And so I get it. It is really hard to find out that the things you were taught, even in the child, with people who you love and who care for you and you have all these wonderful memories with, to find out that they pass along a system of racism and injustice. Yeah. Wow. That's a powerful story. It's a really powerful story. And it's... It is a, it is a grieving... I mean, for, for white people, it is... There's a 
process of grieving there, of grieving what we've been part of and our role in it, and the need to leave it behind. Uh, it's yeah, you know, and and even more. I mean, even more so for me as a, as a British person, being the the country that took this out to the world. You know, it um, kind of through our through the British Empire and you know imperialism and all of that. You know, we brought this on the world, and that's that's not it's not a comfortable thing. It's not, a, but it's but it's but we like you say we need to acknowledge it before we can start that change. It's the beginning of change is when you start to actually acknowledge the truth of what's what's really going on, and um, that is uncomfortable, but it is but it is necessary. Um, absolutely, yeah. Um, and so, like, I mean, what's your lived experience of of this kind of system of systemic racism? Because I know a lot of my listeners will be probably white people, and mm-hmm. you know, we we don't have the lived experience of this, and we 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 won't know what it's like. And you know, and so I think. I think it's. Imp- I think. I guess it's important for to to understand that the kind of the blinkers that we have to what's what's really going on. Oh wow! <laughs> um, <laughs> it for me, it started as child, and I think that's always the thing that is so shocking to people is that for a lot of Black folks and people of color our first experience of dealing with racism didn't happen because we applied for a job as an adult. We saw this as children. So I'll make this generational for you. My dad, God rest his soul, it's been, I think, a year, since, almost a year since he passed away. He talked about growing up in Flint, and he remembers the police shooting at him when he was a child. As he, he'd be on his way to school, and there would be gunshots, and so he and his friends would rape the school, and they could see where the police were. And I was like, Daddy, they shot at you as a child? And he said, well, now I'm an adult. I realized they probably weren't shooting directly at us. They were just mm. shooting to scare us for fun. Hmm. Um, wow. So let's fast forward that to my first year of school, first grade. And I came home, and I told my mom and dad, I was like, I'm not smart. The little girl told me I couldn't be smart. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, there was this white girl in my class who had been taught by taught racism from her parents. And so she saw me because I was disappointed on the grade I got on the test. And she said, well, that's okay. You're black. You're not supposed to be smart. I was five. Wow. So my parents are thinking to themselves, they probably thought they had time, right? <laughs> time to pair those up. You yeah. don't think that's a conversation you have to have with the elementary school students. But for black and brown folks, that is a conversation we have to have. And so my parents are like, well, you're going to study really hard and you're going to do all these things and then you're going to show her every day that black people are intelligent. But that's the kind of armor that we prepare ourselves when we get ready to send our children and ourselves into the world. We prepare ourselves with that armor of education and different things, all the different things that we can have as a barrier and a buffer against racism. So I'll take it a step further. I've got a daughter. She's seven. 
when she was in preschool, this little boy came up to her and said, why don't, your, why don't you look like your mom? You don't match. Because she's biracial. And the little boy was trying to, he's like, you don't look like them. What's wrong with you? And so you see where this is generational, right? Mm. Um, I know I've had to, you know, I've watched people, white people, when they see me with my daughter, I've watched them move away and move their kids away from us. My goodness. I have, you know, because everybody thinks that racism is someone calling you the N-word. Yeah. Right? It's, sometimes it's very subtle. Um, mm. I've shared with people about how I went to go to my bank to make a withdrawal, and it was a sizable withdrawal, and they required me to give them four pieces of ID, an email address, and I had explained the purpose of my withdrawal before they would let me have my money. And I had to remain calm while that was happening because I was afraid that because I had my daughter with me that they might arrest me. And if they arrested me, they'd put her in care, even if it was just a 24-hour or 48-hour hold. And I didn't want her to have that experience. A month after that happened, a black man who was banking with the same banking institution, uh, but a different branch, he was arrested trying to cash his check. And what happened was the teller called police because they did not believe that a black man would have earned that amount of money. And so they called the police on him. So the thing is, my fear was not ungrounded. Mm. These things, simple interactions, um, you know, I, I can go on about, you know, things I have encountered in applying for jobs. I think one of the things some of my colleagues and I used to talk about is I worked for an institution, um, a well-known institution in the nonprofit sector, and I would go uh, meet, I worked for a foundation, and I would go meet with different clients. And when I would get there, they're like, uh, we're looking for the program officer. And they'd be looking around the room because they didn't expect the program officer to be black. Hmm. And I would have to say, I'm the program officer. They're like, so you work there? So what do you do there? And I'd say, I'm the one that's going to make sure that you get the money. And they would, they would be shocked. They weren't sure what to do with that information. Um, but as far as my lived experience, have I ever been called the N-word to my face? Yes. I was in college. Um, the school I went to, we had what are called minority aids to help uh, students of color transition onto that campus and to help minimize any instances of discrimination and harassment that might occur when you have people living together that have lived segregated lives. And I put something up on a board once about white privilege. Hey, you know, want to talk about what white privilege is? I put that up on my bulletin board. Went to eat in the cafeteria. When I came back, they had scrawled the N-word across that board, and there was spit all over my door. So there are really big things that have happened, and very small things. I think probably one of the serious one was traveling with my family. I was probably about eight and my mother had told my uncle, let's stop at a restaurant to eat, but we have to stop at a name brand restaurant. We don't want to stop at some small little diner. And my uncle's like, we're tired. We're just stopping. This is what they did. They stopped at a little small restaurant. 
And when we walked in, everyone stopped eating and they just looked at us. And the lady knew it was against the law for them not to serve us, so they took us back to the table. And they asked for our orders, and we all ordered. And then about 15, 20 minutes later, they brought out our food, and everyone's food was burnt except mine. I mean, burnt where it was inedible. And I just remember being a little girl looking around the table at everyone's face. And my mom said, cut it up, pretend like you're eating, we're going to pay for this food, and then we have to leave quickly. When you've encountered racism as a child, then as a teenager, then as an adult, and I always thought that those stories of the 60s, that I would never see it quite as badly as what we have seen. But I always knew, and I love the way that Trevor Noah said this, that that social contract didn't necessarily apply to me. I knew that, and I just accepted it as part of part of living in a racialized society. Yeah. I didn't like it. It was definitely painful. But I understood what I would need to do to navigate it. I am so grateful that this happened in the middle of a pandemic because it is exhausting to have to try to explain to people my lived experience and have them attempt to mitigate it because it makes them uncomfortable. Mm. And what we saw with the death of George Floyd was the nation could not look away. There was no busyness. There there weren't other things to be distracting. And now we have to deal globally with this idea that it is okay to subjugate and dehumanize people on the basis of skin color. And we cannot be distracted from it now. And unfortunately, the church was a major purveyor of this thought. We cannot run from that, right? That scriptures were used as weapon. Yeah. And so now in this time of quietness, in this time of reflection, this time where the whole world was already grieving, when this happened, it was almost like there was a collective groan within everyone's soul that said, enough. Enough. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want this to carry on to another generation. We don't want them, we don't need any more excuses. We don't need any more pandering. What we need is genuine repentance and change. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And thank you for sharing all of that, um, because I know that it wouldn't have been easy to share that. Um, you know, and it is discomforting to hear that those stories, but it's... But we need to listen to those stories because we need to know what's really going on in the world and the system that is out there that, is, that we've been part of. And and you're right. I think I feel I felt the same. That it was almost like the death of George Floyd. That enough is enough. You know, this this cannot continue as it is. We have to actually do something. We can't just we can't just pay lip service to this. Now we can't just put out statements saying how much we hate racism. We have to actually do something about it. Um, um, I'm not sure who the, who said it, but there's a there's a great quote um, where with, from I think it's from the 1960s or 70s that that really says with 
we need to be anti-racist. Yeah. We can't just not be racist. We have to be anti-racist. And um, I wish I could remember the name of the person who said it because she's a really inspirational person. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, we need to be anti-racist. We can't just. We have to actually be anti-racist in our actions and in our behaviours and in yeah. We need to we need to start demonstrating that we are anti-racist. Um, and for white people, that means doing the work. It means, um, it means, you know, it means reading books. It means watching documentaries. It means listening to black voices. Um, it means supporting black activists. You know, I'm trying to do all of that myself. I'm not doing it perfectly, but but we need to be doing and that. It's very practical. It's it's very practical. You know, it's wherever you are, right? Wherever your sphere of influence is. I shared with someone about. Um, you know, outcomes for black people within healthcare systems, right? You know, a white person goes in and says, wow, I'm in a lot of pain, they may prescribe a painkiller. A black person goes in and says, I'm in a lot of pain, they may or may not get treated, they may get turned away. Um, And then as a result, they may pass away later from a condition that was overlooked because there's this thought of, oh, well, black people aren't to be believed, there's probably exaggerating, they may not be intelligent enough to communicate what they're really dealing with, and so those stereotypes, those very disturbing, negative, misinformed stereotypes, then lead to other issues, right? Um, for me, it came in childbirth, where I kept complaining after my daughter was born and I was still in the hospital, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong. And the staff at this one of the top 10 hospitals in the nation, they basically ignored me. They're like, oh, you're a first-time mother, you don't know what's going on. They sent me home. I was home. I told my dad, I said, Daddy, you know, I just don't feel good. My husband was on his way to work. My dad says my blood pressure, my blood pressure was 171 over 101. Turned out I had postpartum preeclampsia, which had turned into congestive heart failure. If they had checked me when I was at the hospital, they could have treated me while I was there. They did not. If I had not caught that, I wouldn't be here today. These things have real consequences outside of just interacting with the police. They're how children are treated when they're in school. You know, are there possible, mm. you know, scientists and researchers that have been told, you know what would be great for you? A good vocational education would be good for you. Let's have you do some of these other things. Because in that person's mind, they don't see a black person as a professional. They don't see that person of color being able to lead and study and learn in those ways. And so this affects us in so many different areas. And... The issue is that it doesn't just necessarily affect us. What about that physician who now has to live with the fact that their inability to listen to a black patient may cost them their medical life? You know, how do you live with that on your conscience of knowing that you have disenfranchised students because maybe as a teacher you carry that bias into your classroom? Um, Maybe you're carrying that bias into a courtroom. And so it's not just about police reformation, although that's really important that we reform those criminal justice institutions. It's about people looking at wherever they are and saying, what do I need to do to bring equity to where I am? Whether that's whether I'm a homemaker, whether I'm a business owner, what do I need to do right where I am to make sure that this little 
this space that I occupy is going to be safe, inclusive, and diverse. Hmm. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, I mean, in the work that you do with organisations, when, when you work with an organisation who generally want to do the work of systemic change, what kind of things do you recommend to them? Uh, what kind of things do they do you generally kind of implement with them? So I try to make it very personal to the organisation, right? Because every organisation has their own culture. So we start by doing a deep dive of what are they doing right now? What are some of the easy wins that are quick fixes that they can make immediately begin a momentum and a shift in what they do? It could be something as simple as um, it could be something as simple as the media and the graphics that they're using. It could be, you know, maybe taking everyone through some quick understanding of the language that they're going to use when they're presenting material. And then we can begin to look at hiring because that's critical. And we begin to look at leadership structures. So is your leadership team diverse? And what would it take to diversify your leadership? What does it mean to empower your staff to allow them to say and do things? Because oftentimes that culture is taught. So even if you have people that are allies within that culture, they're scared to speak up because they're afraid of retribution and what that might look like. Am I going to lose my job if I post something that says Black Lives Matter? You know, because maybe the culture within my institution says, no, we don't believe that. We believe all lives matter. And if you say that, we're going to begin to marginalize you and move you out of the institution. So talking about how to provide that kind of protection and support for those people that are willing to be allies. And then it's about education. So what are then the stereotypes that we need to, that we need to take down? What are the new um, cultural norms that we need to introduce? And we start off with a glossary of language, you know, to make sure we're all using the common terms. Because, you know, right now there's this big conversation around defending the police who are like, well, I don't think that makes sense. Well, let's, let's begin to talk about those terms and let's begin to implement that. So we're all working with a common language. And then constantly making sure that those people that are in the CEO and the senior leadership position are constantly modeling this. Because if it's not coming from the leadership, it's never going to be implemented in place else. Because even if you have your midline manager saying it, that doesn't hold the same weight. It's got to come from the top down. It has to be the key decision makers as well as the influencers who are part of it, who are implementing this. And it can't just be something you do one time. It can't just be a campaign that you're doing during Asian History Month, um, during Black History Month. This is something that has to be ongoing. And then I ask the question, why were you going to institutionalize this? Because after I'm no longer working with you, what then are what kind of things are going to be in place indefinitely? Right? So how do you institutionalize this within your institution? And that's going to look differently. But oftentimes when it's hiring, I talk about, so let's talk about the cohort model of hiring. Why would you put all the pressure to hire one person of color and you're going to bring them in isolation? How are they supposed to survive in this environment? But what happens if you intentionally bring in a cohort of people of color, right, that can lean on one another, support one another so they don't feel so isolated as they begin to make change? What, how might that change your organization and have people at various levels that are able to tell you what's going on? as opposed to putting everything in this one person going to be the spokesperson for all people of color within your organization. And so as they begin to do that, they're like, okay, we're there. And then facilitating conversations, right? Facilitating groups that can have the hard conversation around what needs to be changed and bringing in folks that can tell them whether they are clients or people that are working there to say, these are my experiences and creating those dialogues so that people can be heard. Because oftentimes... 
people just assume that because no one has complained that everything's okay. Hmm. And it may not have been safe for them to think okay. Because, it's, I mean, think about the environment that we're in right now where so many people are unemployed and underemployed. Hmm. Even yeah. if they want to make changes, it's safe for them to do that because yeah. everybody's got to eat. And so if you're an employer telling me, we want to make change, I start with, are you ready to change your entire company as it relates to that part of your culture from the top down? Because if you're not, you're going to be frustrated in this process. And your employees are going to be frustrated in this process. And it's going to be another thing that it's put in a binder and put on a shelf like, we did that back in 2020. And it didn't work, mm. so now we're moving on. Yeah, that's right. It can't just be a tick box thing. It has to be systemic right the way through. Um, I've heard many, many people say, you yeah, know, this work is, this work takes sacrifice. There will be a big sacrifice if you do this work. Um, you have to make big changes because it's a systemic change. Um, it's not just surface change. Um, absolutely. And that's really hard for people because they want my husband always says this. He said people want to look good, but if people people want to look good, look good, but they don't always want to do good. Yeah, yeah. Because doing good requires a change. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I saw some of the statements that were put out by different companies, and some of the companies, their statement was so benign, you almost didn't know what they were referencing. I mean, they could have been referencing anything, and some of them had to walk those statements back and start over again. It's like, let's be very explicit about what it is that your company stands for. Mm. And what I think people should recognize that what happened to Colin Kaepernick is going to happen and has happened to people who have stood for these things in the past. And that is a hard economic truth. There are going to be some people that take a stand and they may very well no longer remain employed as a result. Because it is systemic. It is institutional. And there are certain institutions that don't want that kind of change. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's a that's a challenge. And we have to we have to face up to that. You know. Um why, why you know, why people who are trying to do this work have to just accept that there'll be a cost to it. And uh, and and we have to we have to choose to bear that cost. There isn't a, to me there isn't another option. We have to we have to take responsibility. We have to do the work. We whatever the cost is, um, because um, yeah, because it's, because things have to change. Um, and so that becomes the question. The cost is more than just hiring a consultant to come in. The mm, cost is yeah. Whew, there's a you know. <sighs> As a, as a pastor, you know, just the thought that, you know, there's a reason why altars are so frequent in the Old Testament. So there's always something that we're going to need to sacrifice in order to grow closer. There's always something that we need to lay down. There's always, there's always something that we need to be willing to put on that altar. And it change always costs. Yes. You know, and, it, and George Floyd won't be the only person that has to pay the price. 
Ahmaud Arbery is not the only person that has to pay the price. Breonna Taylor is not the only person. And so we all have to be willing to sacrifice in order to make this change a reality. And I know here in my home state of Michigan, it was very evident to me that there are a lot of white people that have never been that uncomfortable. That racism is allowed for a certain level of ease um, in their day-to-day -day living that they may not have realized. And so the minute that our governor said, okay, there's a quarantine, everybody has to stay home, everybody has to do this, we had people marching in our state capitol with weapons saying, I don't want to be this uncomfortable. I don't want to have to deal with this. And in order for things to change, there's going to have to be a lot of white folks that are willing to get really uncomfortable. And you're seeing it now. You're seeing people out. You're seeing them protesting. You're seeing them, you know, reaching out to learn and wanting to make changes, even in their small businesses and large businesses and their churches and their organizations. And that is fantastic. We just need more. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We absolutely do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and one of the things I've noticed is that with white people is that they want is that we some of us want to want just quick fixes you know and uh, and this is lifelong work it's you know it's that's what I've been learning it is life it's lifelong work every single day to do a bit more learn a bit more make a bit more change because that's the only way that it will happen um, there's no there's no quick fixes to systemic change uh, there's no kind of shortcuts. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you for coming on and, and sharing. I, I really do appreciate it and for sharing so much of your own story as well. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful. Oh, thank you for making space to have the conversation. I would just want to encourage the thought that if we do this work, then the next generation of people don't have to. Right? Mm. If we do this well, if we embrace this time of change, then my daughter won't have to have the same conversations with me that I had with my father and that he had with his father. You know, there are going to be some challenges, but they can be new challenges. They can be different challenges. Mm. That, that's what keeps me going. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and we just keep doing the work. And I'm, I'm committed to doing that work and every day. Uh, and, yeah, we need to, white people need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and just doing the work and listening um, that is really really important and I'm grateful for all the work that you do as well and um, yeah and definitely we'll have you back on the show sometime as well there's so much more to talk about so um, thank you Shannon for coming on the show and where can people find your work as well um, they can go to my website uh, com. And on all the socials, I'm at Dr. Shannon Polk. Fantastic, fantastic. And do check that out. It's really great. I've 
had a look. It's um, it's really fantastic what you're doing. So, thank you, um, and thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. <laughs>